It is so good to be with you guys tonight. I feel like I say that every week, but it truly is so good to be with you guys. And it, and it is my great pleasure and privilege uh, to get to do this with you guys on a week-by-week basis. And you guys have no idea how much of a blessing this is to me. To get to worship with you guys, to get to, to sit and to discuss God's word and to do life with y'all. It is truly the best job a, a guy could ever ask for. And so thank you guys for being here. My name is JD. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm the Crosstalk Pastor with Cypress Creek Church. And we as Crosstalk uh, began the semester and we're at the very beginning of walking through the entirety of the book of Luke over the course of this semester. And there's a lot of like very deep philosophical or theological reasons on why we might do that. But there's also just a very simple and plain answer. And that's that we as followers of Jesus, we as believers, we as crosstalk simply need to be all about Jesus. We don't need to make it any more complicated than it is. And so what we're going to do over the course of this semester, we're just going to walk through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to open each week here in crosstalk and in our community groups, we're just going to open up to the book of Luke and allow God the permission to speak into our lives, to correct us to teach us, to heal us, and to bring us to new understanding of who he is. And if you guys weren't here last week, or I always know first weeks of the semester are really difficult. You're trying to figure out routine and rhythms of life. If you guys weren't here last week, here's a brief recap so you guys can get caught up on where we are. We, we looked at the beginning of the book of Luke and landed on the only story that we have of Jesus's adolescence, of his childhood, in any of the gospel accounts. And That's the story when Jesus stays behind in the temple after his family goes to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so his parents are heading back to Nazareth, and Jesus stays behind. And so his parents get a full day's journey out, full day's journey out, and they realize that Jesus isn't there. So they turn around and come back to Jerusalem, and they spend three days looking for him. And eventually they find him in the temple. And his mom basically just walks up to him and does exactly what you would expect a mom to do. She goes, where were you? Like, we were worried about you. And Jesus answers very simply, and he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And this is the first time that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Luke, and and it's very shocking. And it's shocking for us because of how strongly Jesus identifies with the father. Right here in this moment, he is claiming identity as the son of God. And That is critical for us to to understand before we even make it out of the first two chapters of the book of Luke, because that is foundational for us in understanding everything that is to come. It sets up the entire narrative for us. And so the story kind of skips forward from this point. It goes 18 years forward. He goes from 12 years old to around 30 years old. And at this point, we see this guy named John the Baptist who enters the the storyline. And John the Baptist, it says that that he lived in the wilderness and he wore clothes of camel's hair and he ate locusts and honey. And John's wilderness ministry, John's wilderness ministry echoed the prophetic call for Israel to remember God's provision for them in the wilderness. And, And John's ministry included baptizing and teaching about the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so he goes around and people are coming to him and they're starting to wonder if John himself is the Messiah. And John answers them and he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
And we see then that John is just the precursor to Jesus who is to come after him. And so John, what, what really strikes me in his words is his humility. There's one coming after me, and I am not even worthy to untie the sandal, the straps on his sandals. And that to me is really profound because we look at John the Baptist and throughout the biblical storyline, he is the fulfillment of a prophecy that we see. He has has been baptizing. He has been teaching on repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And he has this massive following, right? All of the respect and the honor and the glory that you would want. And yet John the Baptist here in this moment says, it's not me. And the one who's coming, I am not even worthy to untie the straps on his sandals. And then I think about my own life, and I think about how I often approach God saying, God, do this for me. I need you to, to, for this to happen. And so I come to God expecting him to serve me. And then I look at the story of John the Baptist, and I say that John, John has this whole thing figured out because he just stands, and he said, and he points to God, and he says, not me, but the one who is to come, who was Jesus. And so from there, we pick up the story, and John plays a critical role in the story of Jesus, and we see that in, in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus goes to see John the Baptist, and he sees him on the bank of the River Jordan, and he asks John to baptize him. And he gets baptized, Jesus gets baptized in the river alongside all of the other people. Luke tells us, which is really remarkable in and of itself that, that, that Jesus didn't see himself as any better than or any higher than the rest of the people, but went in amongst the people and was baptized. And we see here in this story that Matthew tells us that John basically argued against baptizing Jesus. Actually, what John did is he insisted that Jesus baptize him. And so John eventually loses that argument. He baptizes Jesus, and it says that when Jesus gets baptized, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and the heavens, and and a voice came from heaven, and it said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then immediately from there, we go into Luke chapter 4. And it says that Jesus, starting here in verse 1, it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and for when they had ended, he was hungry. And there's this intended parallel between Jesus and the story of the nation of Israel when we look at this. Because what we see if we look back to the book of Exodus is we see that that as the Israelites are led out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years, independence upon God for, for their sustenance, right? Numerous times throughout the book of Exodus, we see that the Israelites complain about not having food and not having water. They're totally reliant upon God's provision. And we see here, remarkably, that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, And it's in that that we see that Jesus is tested not because he lacks God's presence or mission, but precisely because he has both of those through the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it tells us that the Son of God is not exempt from temptation, but rather he has to expect it. And he has to expect it at a level that is 
more than the average human. And the Spirit leads this testing in the wilderness to determine whether Jesus, the Son of God, will use his divine power and nature to further his own selfish ambition, or if he will choose to follow the mission of God that God had laid out before him. The testing of Jesus as the Son of God can be seen as the test of whether he will be the servant of God, whether he will choose to fulfill his mission here on earth. And I think that we need to to wrestle with this idea of testing in our own life because the automatic assumption for us is that testing is bad, therefore it is not of God, right? And if this thing is hard or if this thing is difficult, then it can't be of God. And what this passage of scripture does is it flips that paradigm exactly on its head and it says that God is the one who led Jesus into testing, which for us has to flip our perspective so that we're viewing testing not as a bad thing, but actually as a good thing. Because you see, it's in these wilderness seasons, it's in these seasons of testing that we see growth, that we see that the largest amounts of leaps forward in our faith happen in the moments that seemed the, the most difficult. And, and all of these moments ultimately come with a choice, right? Testing always comes with a choice. Will I choose the thing, thing of God or will I choose the things of this world? And we see that play out for Jesus. It says here in verse three that the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Interesting, we see the devil call Jesus the son of God in this moment. The devil in this moment affirms Jesus's sonship with the father. What he's doing is he's challenging how Jesus uses that sonship. And the devil addresses Jesus at his most obvious need, right? His hunger. And when I was in college, I I had this really amazing his name was Dave. He was a pastor at the church that I was going to, and, and he discipled me all throughout college. And I had this season of life where I was really struggling with, with direction. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to live and was struggling with like whether I was called into ministry or what I, what I was supposed to be doing. With my life. And Dave came to me and he said, hey, have you ever considered fasting? So he convinces me to fast and we do this seven day fast, a full seven days. The only thing that I drank was water. We didn't even do juices or anything like that. And so at the end of the seven days, Dave and I get back together. I'm sitting in his house and we're sitting and we're praying and we're rejoicing over the things that God has taught us. And then afterwards, we break our fast by buying an unbelievably large amount of pizza. Like between the two of us, I think we bought four pizzas. It was just like too much at that moment. And, And what I did is exactly what you're not supposed to do. I ate at least an entire large pizza, and I was more sick than I have ever felt in my life. If there's one thing you don't do coming out of seven days without food, it's just eat as much food as quickly as you possibly can. It is horrible for you. You're actually supposed to have, like, only juices and then only soups, and then you, like, move to solid food, like, three days later, and it was like, no, large pizza right now. And after seven days, that that pizza sat in front of me, and I knew that I wasn't supposed to eat the whole thing. I knew logically that I was going to feel terrible. 
But in that moment, I said, I, I really, quite frankly, just don't care. <laughs> and the devil here is tempting Jesus with what we would call the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And we will always, what that means is that we will always be tempted by the most relevant behavior. The thing that is sitting in front of us. And it's the easiest decision for us to make because it's the thing that distracts us from what we know to be true. Because the eyes will always lead us astray. And that could show up in our life in a million different ways. It could show up in our life by eating an entire large pizza. It could show up in our life through our internet browser history. It could show up in our life when someone tells us something that's just like so juicy that we just want to go tell everyone else we know about it and break their trust. It shows up in our life when, when we act out of pride and we hurt other people. It, it, it shows up in our life when we have one more drink than we know that we should. And it shows up in our life when, gosh, we, we have the temptation to be academically dishonest. Because those are the easy things that are placed in front of us on an everyday basis. And in our moments of weakness, we choose the easy thing. We choose the thing that is the simple pleasure or the easy way out. And Jesus' response here is incredibly instructive for us. What he does is he directly goes back to Scripture, forcing the devil to face his ultimate adversary, God. That it's not upon his own strength that he relies, but it's only upon God's word that he places authority and power. And that has to be key number one for us. When we, when we encounter these things in our life, is always to go back to the word of God. Jesus says, it is written, People do not live on bread alone. And when you break this down grammatically, it is written as a technical expression that implies the full authority of God in that moment. He's not saying that some guy said it is written. He's not saying that I say. He is saying God said this. And so it carries weight and it carries authority in our life. And the quote is directly from Deuteronomy chapter 8 in which Moses is reminding the Israelite people that they should trust God's word rather than the manna that he provides. That, that we need to trust in the creator and not the created. Because the most tangible thing is to always trust the created thing in front of us and not to, to trust the one that we know who is in control. And verse 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This temptation is wondrous in comparison to the temptation of bread, because what the devil here is offering Jesus is all glory and honor and power on earth. And the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in the same way that God shows Moses the promised land on, on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And the devil claims this authority has been given to him by God and thus dares to take over that authority. But what we see here is that ultimately that's not true. Because we see that the devil's authority and power is not equal to God, but always subordinate to it. 
And so we see that Jesus' second temptation is called the lust of the flesh. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we all want recognition. We all want influence. We all want power. We want notoriety. We want people to treat us with that. We want to have importance. And it drives so much of today's society. That's That's the great allure of social media, right? That I'm going to cultivate followers and friends, and I'm then going to leverage those people into influence. And I'm going to leverage them into notoriety, and I'm going to leverage them into being able to use them to get what I want at its most dangerous. I'm not saying social media is bad, but that's, that is how it can be used, right? It's just a tool to get things from other people, to leverage power. And Jesus responds that the one proper worship is to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And this, again, is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Jesus adds one small thing in it, and he just adds the word only. He adds the word only. And I think it's super important for us to notice the word only, and here's why I think he does it. Because Jesus wants to place an emphasis on the uncompromising worship of God alone. An uncompromising worship of God alone. Not of power not of respect, not of influence, but on God alone. And it says in verse 9, And the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, the top of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up and lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Luke concludes the story with the temptation of Jesus in Jerusalem at the highest point of the temple. And this is the climax of the entire narrative because what happens here is an echo of what is to come here at the end of this gospel account. And the temptation of Jesus as son of God to jump from the temple in this moment prepares him for his greatest test. And this test is no longer in the wilderness, but it's here in Jerusalem, where Jesus, the son of God, is tempted to forsake his salvific mission and to come down off of the cross. We see in Mark chapter 15, It says that those who passed by Jesus on the cross hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. The devil tempts Jesus using scripture in this moment. The final temptation of Jesus is to promote himself to prove to the devil that he indeed is the son of God. And this temptation is called the pride of life. And we all have this temptation because it's the temptation to prove ourselves. It's the temptation to prove that we can do things, that we can make things, that we're capable, that we add value. Because we want to prove that we have something to offer that we are worth something. 
And Jesus again responds to the devil using scripture from Deuteronomy 6. And in this moment, we see that though the devil may quote scripture, anyone can quote scripture. Anyone can quote scripture in and out of context and bend it and use it to their advantage, to use it to to their end goal. We see that Jesus here is bound to scripture because it is the expressed will of God. And we talked about this last semester, but we see in this moment that Jesus is showing us that scripture alone is our authority for understanding God's work in the world. And there's one important thing that we as readers need to notice in that in this passage. And it's that the devil doesn't make the earth ugly and bad. He makes it more agreeable. He makes it more agreeable. And I think that's the greatest temptation of today. To find the world more agreeable. To conform to the culture and to the world around us. Because the the promise of culture and the promise of the world is that a life, a worldly life is going to be more fun. It's going to be more filling. That it's going to have greater purpose that it's going to have greater meaning than any relationship with God. And I remember how hard college was for me because for the longest time I struggled for years trying to live both as a follower of God and pursuing the things that culture told me made college fun. And in this, we see that the temptations of the enemy are always deceptive. Because we know that the nature of the devil is that he can only ever be the adversary of God. And I remember the moment it all clicked for me, and I finally got it and decided to go, let go, and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And so I, and I, and I believe that this is true. I think that there are seasons when we as Christians will feel alone. I don't think that we're ever going to have a moment where Christianity is going to be. And so I think that, that all of us collectively go through feel, times and seasons where we feel lonely because all of our friends are doing one thing and the world is doing one thing and we have, we're standing and we're swimming upstream saying, I want to do this other thing. And so I was trying to straddle the fence on this because I was tired of feeling lonely. I was tired of feeling like everybody else was having fun and I was standing on my moral principles and I was sitting at home on a Friday night. So Saturday night comes rolling around. I go out with my buddies. And I say, I'm coming home at 11. 11 o'clock rolls around. I say, I'm going to come go home at midnight. Midnight rolls around. I say, I'm going to go home at 1. I finally drag myself home. I go to bed. I wake up the next morning, and I'm driving to church. And I'm driving to church, and I am hurting. Because I'm so hungover from the night before as I'm getting there. And I pull up to the church, I close the door, I go inside, and I put on my best face, and I preached that morning. I preached more hungover than I had been my entire life. And I tried to put on a good enough face that people didn't realize. And so I got done, and I got off stage, and I went down, and I, and I said hi to everybody, and I did the polite thing, and then I got in my car, and I just lost it. Because I felt like such a big hypocrite. 
saying to myself, like, how can you possibly be doing this? How can you be trying to live this dualistic life? Like, it's just dishonest. And it was in that moment that I realized that everything that I was trying to pursue by going out and doing the things that I was told that I was supposed to do in college, what they're really doing was leaving me more empty. They were leaving me more lonely. They were leaving me more lost than I'd ever been. And so in that moment, I just decided that, God, this, a life with you has to be better. That it has to have more meaning. That it has to have more purpose. And that same question that I had to answer for myself is the same one that you guys have to answer. And that's the, that's the question that has so much meaning for us in our life. Because it's the choice of, am I going to conform to the things of this world or am I going to choose the things of God? Meg Jay um, wrote a book. It's called The Defining Decade. And, and in that book, her research shows she, she's a uh, psychologist for 20-somethings. That's exclusively her gig. It's like real niche, right? And her research shows that you make 80% of life's decisions in your 20s. 80% of life's decisions happen in your 20s. That's who you're going to marry, what your job's going to be, how many kids you want to have, where you're going to settle down, all the, who your friends are going to be, whether you're going to go to church or not. All of these life-changing choices happen in your 20s, 80%. And then you spend the rest of your life either living into your good decisions or you spend the rest of your life trying to correct the bad ones. And college, quite frankly, is the most pivotal time, the most pivotal four years or six years or eight years, however long you guys are going to be here. It is the most pivotal point in your life where you have to make a choice because it's going to set the course for how you walk into adulthood, for how you walk into the workplace, for how you walk into marriage. This is the time right now to make that choice because right here in this story, we see the enemy's plan. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And what we see is that the enemy wants to tempt us with the things of this world, to make them look more agreeable, to make them look more attractive. And we need to have the self-awareness to notice when it's happening. Because the enemy is not creative, he's not innovative, and he's not new. The same temptations that Jesus faced 2,000 years ago are the exact same temptations today. They haven't changed. They haven't gotten any different. They're still the exact same. And so we see the enemy's plan laid out before us in this passage. And in those moments of temptation, we have to make the choice of whether we're going to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Because he walked through this before. And he knows all of the temptations. And now he stands offering us something more, offering us something better, offering us true freedom. Ernst Lohmeyer, who's a German biblical scholar, captures this truth really insightfully, and he says, 
that the devil addressed Jesus as the son of God. But Jesus answered with the duties of a common man. This is the meaning of his sonship, not to stand above human beings, but to live among them, not as God and to be different, but as a man like them to carry out his commission as the son of God. And so we have a savior who knows what it means to be human, to be tempted in every way. And so we know that his offer stands good, that it is better and greater than anything that we could ever imagine for ourselves and anything that the world could offer us. And so my question for you guys is what choice are you guys going to make? And I would encourage you that you don't have to make the mistakes I did to figure it out. I'm telling you, I wasted years of my life trying to figure it out. And Jesus was still there calling me back to him with not, without judgment, without condemnation, but an offer of life and life.